Welcome to the Jubilee Plus podcast. I'm Abby Thomas and today I'm bringing you a seminar from the Churches That Change Communities Conference with Helen Barnard. Helen is a leading national expert on poverty, inequality and social policy and this seminar is called Beverages Five Giants Today and it's a fascinating look at something that was very new to me. Hi, I'm Helen Barnard, Director of Policy Research and Impact at the Trussell Trust. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this amazing event. I know that so many of you are really on the front on the front line, working in your communities, meeting people's needs with compassion and fighting for social justice. So it's fantastic to be able to be part of this conference. Last year was the 80th anniversary of the Beverage Report, published in 1942, that laid the foundations for our modern welfare state. Last year I published a book which looked at that modern welfare state established by Beveridge and asked, had it achieved what it was intended to and is it still fit for purpose? My book was called Want, which was one of the five giants that Beveridge talked about, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But it looked across all of those issues that Beveridge felt was holding us back as a nation and needed to be addressed. If you want to see the book, if you want to get it, it is this one, Want by Helen Barnard. Now, Beveridge developed his ideas in the 1920s and 30s. He was building on research and experiments in social policy that had been bubbling up across the country for the first half of the century. All those ideas came together after the Second World War, riding a wave of public support and a demand for change after that national ordeal. Beveridge summed it up by saying the purpose of victory is to live in a better world than the old world. Now, Beveridge believed there were five giants that needed to be slain to achieve social progress. The language he used to describe them sounds archaic to us, but the issues will be deeply familiar to all of us here today. So he talked about want, which means poverty, idleness, which we would describe as unemployment, ignorance or lack of education, disease, and squalor or bad housing. So 80 years on, where are we? Have we slain those giants? I think that first we should acknowledge that we've made enormous progress and the institutions that were designed after the Second World War have achieved great things on their own terms. So many appalling diseases have been eradicated. Life expectancy has risen. Most children go to school, most of them come out with decent literacy and numeracy. With all its flaws, the social security system does provide many people with support and it is a big improvement on the arbitrary patchwork that came before it and the oppressive poor laws that governed it. But we all know that there are still millions of people living in want who are shut out of the essentials of a decent life. So at the Trussell Trust, we recently published our landmark study, Hunger in the UK, and we found, shockingly, that 11.3 million people face hunger across our country. That's more than double the population of Scotland. We live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and yet one in seven people face hunger because they simply do not have enough money for the essentials we all need to get by. Now, beneath that shocking headline lies a troubling picture of the pressures people are under and the myriad ways that people are being failed by the social, economic and institutional systems that are meant to protect us. 
Poverty has been deepening in recent years and the pattern of who is at greatest risk of severe hardship has been changing. So when Beveridge thought about what trapped people in poverty, he focused on unemployment among men mainly, slums and people out of the labour market because of injuries from industrial machinery or injuries from the war that had just happened. But the challenges that face us now are quite different. So today, it isn't really unemployment that is the big problem in our labour market. It's poor quality work. People who get stuck in jobs that are not only low paid, but are also insecure, unpredictable, and don't come with the chance for training or progression to something better. For the most part, in education, the biggest challenge we face isn't children not getting basic education, although there is obviously some of that, but really the big challenge is adults who need to repeatedly reskill to move into newly created industries as both our domestic and the global economy changes. The other issue we face is large numbers of workers who need to balance caring for children or for adults with paid work and that restricts them to some of the worst quality of jobs without the option for better paid work, even when in many cases they've got the skills and the qualifications to do something that would give, us, give them a decent wage. And the other issue is people who are out of the labour market, not generally because they've suddenly had an injury, but because they have a long-term condition like back problems or depression. And large numbers of disabled people who would like to work and could work, but they're held back because of discrimination, because of employer attitudes, because of a lack of capacity within employers to redesign jobs so they can be opened up to parents, carers, to disabled people. And we also have services like childcare and transport that should be connecting people to opportunities, but at the moment too often are throwing up barriers to those opportunities. And I think what we're now seeing is that the institutions and the services that were designed in that post-war industrial era, they are straining, even buckling under the pressure. Now, the current cost of living crisis, I think we can all see every day, is inflicting immense damage on the people with the least ability to withstand it. And that's exacerbated because it comes hot on the heels of the disproportionate impact of the COVID pandemic on people who were already struggling. So during the pandemic, it was workers in poverty who bore the brunt of COVID-related job losses and falls in income. What we saw during the pandemic was that people with high incomes tended to be able to maintain those incomes and actually even built up savings because they weren't able to go out and spend them in the same way. By contrast, people on lower incomes tended to build up debt because they were having to cover higher costs, often from a lower income. But the vulnerability of people on low incomes to first the pandemic and then the cost of living crisis was greater because of a long-term trend of rising levels of deep poverty. Research from the Joseph Rantry Foundation found that between 2017 and 2019, destitution, so the deepest form of poverty in the UK, destitution rose by 54%. Last August, NHS bosses wrote to the Chancellor warning that the cost of living crisis was about to become an NHS crisis because of the impact of poverty on people's health. 
And this additional pressure on an already strained health service has grown even more over the past year. Now, one pretty shocking culmination of all of this was a couple of months ago, the revelation that food banks in the Trussell Trust network had provided almost three million food bank parcels in the previous year, a million of those for children. That was a 37% increase on the number of emergency parcels distributed the previous year, and it reflected a record level of need seen in every part of the UK. But the Trussell Trust figures and the other research that's been done into deep poverty and hardship shows us that this isn't a sudden emergency. It is just the latest chapter in a longer term crisis. So food bank need has more than doubled over the last five years. So I think the question for us is what solutions do we need now, given the scale of the hardship we're seeing and the strain that those post-war institutions are under? How do we refresh them to meet this new challenge? And I think there are four areas where we need to rethink and redesign our systems for the modern era. The first of those is social security. I think we're all pretty familiar with the impact of the various cuts and freezes over the last decade. But I think there is a deeper problem we need to get to grips with. Every day, it becomes clearer to most of us that food banks and charitable support are not the solution to the hardship we're seeing around us. Millions of people will continue to find themselves unable to afford essentials until we deliver real sustainable solutions. And that has to start with reforming universal credit and other benefits. So it seems incredible to me that the level of benefits isn't and has never been set with reference to the actual cost of the essentials of life. But that is the situation we're seeing. And the result is that the current rate has fallen so far below the costs of food, clothing, basic household items like cleaning products. So we calculated with the Joseph Rowtree Foundation that a single adult needs £120 a week to cover those essentials. But universal credit is set at £85 a week. So every single week, people's income is falling £35 below what they need. And that's before you add in the impact of various caps and cuts and of debt deductions being taken off a lot of people's benefits. And I think charities, churches, civil society, we simply can't address the root causes of this unacceptable hardship on our own. We will never be able to do enough alone to turn back the tide of hunger. We need our social and economic institutions to be reformed to achieve that. And we need social security to be returned to a genuine level of social protection, a safety net below which nobody is, a, is allowed to fall. The second area that I think we need to look at is public services. So before Beveridge, there was a patchwork of local services. As the industrial era took hold, those were largely replaced by what I think now is an industrial approach to employment support, to health services and to education. So large scale services that were trying to match workers with jobs in, in big cities by and large. We're trying to educate children to be able to work in factories. Health services that were trying to do large scale vaccinations 
again, for big cities to prevent disease spreading. Now, those services have achieved great things, but I think too often now to the people within them, it feels as if they're being treated like a widget in an industrial machine in a factory. People feel as if they're moved through a process rather than being treated as a person. And many services have been tilted further and further towards responding to acute issues and crises rather than preventing problems. So again, if we think back to these health services were designed to do two things really, to kind of patch people up after the war and with industrial accidents, and to do vaccinations so that diseases didn't spread through the slums and the big cities, which was now where people were collected. So you get lots of big hospitals and those kind of large scale things, and that's where most of the money is. But actually these days, what we're trying to deal with are people who are facing chronic, often multiple chronic conditions, and where the majority of the drivers of that health, these health problems are outside the health service. It is about poverty and about social isolation and all those things. So I think that what, what that means is we have to find a way to tilt our health services back towards local, networked, preventative approaches while holding on to a commitment to a minimum level of help wherever you are. The third area is how do we manage modern labour markets? So the labour market today is beset by low-paid, insecure jobs in which people feel deeply disempowered. And I think we need to shape it much more actively now to achieve both better national productivity and better opportunities for individuals and better health for people. In practical terms, one of the things that means is bringing back an employment bill which has been promised for several years now to increase rights and security at the bottom end of the market. And it also means using investment, particularly public investment, public procurement, procurement, and also consumer and employee influence to increase the space for business models that will deliver both commercial success and public benefits. So if you think about a business like Timpson's, which prioritises decent pay, good security, empowering workers. Those are the kinds of businesses we want to grow in our economy. And we want to reduce the space for the much more exploitative business models. So think about Mike Ashby's Sports Direct, where there has been endless evidence, not just about low pay, about insecure contracts, and also about the way that workers have been treated. So we need to create an environment which helps create more Timpsons and reduces the space for the Ashbys to be treating workers in this way. The third thing is housing. We need to think much more carefully about how we deal with housing and how we tax wealth in our economy. So if you think about the housing market, at the moment, you have lots and lots of people who are basically stuck in the private rented sector which is very expensive and pretty insecure. And a lot of the people in that sector are on low incomes and that is one of the key things which is trapping them in poverty and is preventing them being able to build a stable, decent, secure life for themselves. A lot of those people in the past 
would either have had access to social housing, so properly affordable social housing, or they would have been able to get onto the housing market, housing ladder and get a house of their own. But what we see now is we have too little social housing for the people who really need it, and the barriers to home ownership for people on lower incomes are incredibly high. So we need to reorient the housing market so that we're prioritising, providing stable, decent, affordable homes for everyone. What that means is we need a lot more social housing because there is a whole group of people who really do need that properly affordable home. We also need to regulate the private rented sector so that it is also a more secure place to be. And there have obviously been moves towards that from the current government, but we need to see that followed through and strengthened. And we also, of course, need to make sure that housing benefit covers the actual cost of rents for people on low incomes, because that link has also been broken in recent years. So what people are finding is that in order to keep up with the rent and avoid eviction, they have to use money from other benefits or from very low wages that would otherwise be going to food and other essentials. They have to use that money to top up housing benefit. And that is creating unacceptable, unnecessary hardship. Now, one of the things I reflected on when I was writing my book was a sense of instability and constant crisis that I feel we're in now, which I think is somewhat reminiscent of the 1920s and 30s, where a lot of the ideas that Beveridge used were bubbling up. And there's an economic historian called Carlotta Perez, she studies the links between technology and social change. And what she argues is that every major technological breakthrough creates a period of crisis as society adjusts. She describes three phases in this process. So it starts with excitement at something new. It then moves into recession, often widening inequalities, social unrest, the rise of populist leaders a lot of which feels very familiar when you look at not only our country, but across a lot of Europe and the rest of the world. But then the third phase is when new social norms emerge, new institutions are developed that match the enormous economic and social changes that are swept through. And the 1920s and 30s were one such period. So the Edwardian age, which was all about stability and deference, that was breaking down. The Industrial Revolution was driving new forms of organisation, new power structures, and creating new social problems which the state at the time just couldn't cope with. That was the environment in which William Beveridge developed his ideas for a new welfare state. And I think we can have hope that the current period of instability can give birth to our next great leap forward to create social progress, economic security for people. The final thought I want to leave you with is poverty is about power. So the least powerful workers can't avoid the jobs that trap them in poverty. The poorest consumers can't get the best prices. People who are without economic and social power are reliant on public services that treat them it feels like sometimes at best as children and at worst at cogs in the machine. Prejudice and discrimination mean that disabled people, some black and minority ethnic groups and women have even fewer options, 
even less leverage to change their situation. Now, the industrial welfare state proposed by Beveridge did represent an immense leap forward from the patchwork of services that existed before the Second World War and the attitudes that were expressed in the poor laws that were still in force. But he was also the product of the age of deference. The institutions he designed baked in the morals and the assumptions of that generation. So class distinctions were very firmly in place, backed up by harsh moral judgments. So the people designing this system assumed that people in power should determine what the lower classes, as they would have put it, should have, how they would behave, how what they would see as their weaknesses should be corrected. A very parent-child approach to this. They also assumed a lot of dependence. They assumed women would be dependent on men. They assumed disabled people would be dependent on family and others. They assumed older people would be dependent on younger people. They assumed that workers would be dependent on bosses. As we come to terms with the current technological shift and its accompanying political, social and economic instability, I think we have to design institutions that do much more to shift power. So we need to rebalance digital markets to empower consumers. We need to rebalance labour markets to create better jobs and career paths for workers. We need to rebalance the housing market to create stable homes. We need to rebalance our tax system to tap into accumulated wealth and revive some of the fairness that I think a lot of people feel has been lost. And we need to rebalance our public services to put users in the driving tests, driving seat and put relationships at their heart. And I think it's only by grasping this nettle we can create the new social norms, the new structures we need to bring us past crisis and into calmer waters. Thank you so much to Helen Barnard and thank you for joining us on the Jubilee Plus podcast. Tomorrow we'll be hearing from Dave Mumford and Victoria Armstrong about how to move from crisis relief to release. Do subscribe on your podcast feed and why not send this episode to a friend who you think would find it helpful. And I'll look forward to being back with you tomorrow. The shelter of your way.